Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and today I'll be speaking with Michael Takash, activist, archivist, and author, who literally wrote the book on LGBT Milwaukee. So welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, thank you. You're quite welcome. Um, I know that you are quite knowledgeable about the uh, Milwaukee and Wisconsin LGBT history, uh, especially focusing on the bars. But um, a lot of the people who are listening may not be aware of, um, you know, how progressive and active Wisconsin was in the gay scene back going back in history. Um, I know a couple of people I've mentioned it to already have said Wisconsin, they have gay bars there. So, so I thought we'd maybe start off by introducing to the world the fact that almost 30 years ago, the governor of Wisconsin, Lee Dreyfus, signed a bill making it illegal for any state or private businesses to discriminate based on sexual orientation in employment and housing. Um, pretty, pretty remarkable for a state like Wisconsin, don't you think? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, yes, this was the first bill in the country that actually prohibited discrimination against gay and lesbians in housing and employment. Um, but it was really the culmination of a lot of early resistance and revolt, um, starting, you know, going back to the 1961 Black Night Brawl, which was the first recorded LGBT uprising in Wisconsin history and continuing through the late 60s and early 70s with organizations like Gay Liberation Front, uh, the Gay Liberation Organization, and finally Gay People's Union, which really drove, like feverishly drove the gay rights movement forward in Wisconsin in a way that maybe wasn't quite as ferocious in other states. Um, Wisconsin really had some early civil rights leadership in in gay liberation that I, I don't know where the state would be today without them. There really has been no one like them since since them, um, but they really formed and grew the Gay People's Union organization into something that was really quite formidable and politically powerful and was able to change journalistic practices, police practices, and ultimately even state law. I mean, this was this was really, truly um, a force to be dealt with in Wisconsin. And I, I don't know that we have that today. And it's refreshing to see that um, because everybody always thinks of, you know, all the initial uprisings and everything happening in L.A. or San Francisco or New York. And um, this obviously illustrates that Wisconsin you know, was an early player in that game as well in the 1960s. Um, now, I know you're, you're a, um, a native Wisconsinite, correct? Sixth generation. So you, you personally have a lot of history in, uh, in Wisconsin as well. Now, you had mentioned to me that um, the evolution of LGBTQ Milwaukee, the way it is today, kind of evolved through a number of stages 
and in a number of different areas in town. Would you like to address some of that maybe? Um, sure, absolutely. So what I think is most remarkable about the history of LGBT Milwaukee, going back to like the very first recorded mention of gay and lesbian people existing in Milwaukee, um, it, it's that you know most of these bars, most of these spaces were really hiding in plain sight. These were not like roadhouses out in the country. These were not back alley basement bars. They were really in pretty prominent locations um, when you think of real estate and visibility and, and, and access and so forth. Um, in the 1920s, most of the gay activity that was happening in Milwaukee was happening like right around City Hall Square, which was literally like a crosswalk away from City Hall. Um, there was a hotel in the area called the St. Charles Hotel, long gone. Today it is an M&I, I'm sorry, a BMO Harris skyscraper. And um, in the 1920s, it was a very popular place to have gin parties during Prohibition. And federal agents recorded that pansy boys and dagger dykes roam the halls freely and engage in wanton parties. And it's it's kind of comical, the jargon of the time, but this was really the first mention of gay people existing in Milwaukee um, in a way that reflected their sexual identity and perhaps something of their behavior. Um, although it's stereotypical language, I'll take it. Many of the historical references of LGBT people before the 1960s are terrible, depressing, dark stereotypes, um, but they show that they've always been there and we've always been in places like Milwaukee and not just in big cities and not just in traditional gay places. Um, the community was a bit scattered, a little bit divergent um, in the 20s and 30s and even the early 40s. But after World War II, when a great number of people came back to Wisconsin who did not want to go back to the family farm, did not want to settle down and accept the American dream, did not want to get married and have children, but wanted to live in the city and kind of embrace this, you know, bachelor lifestyle after being in same gendered environments for so long and really digging it. Um, there was suddenly this huge groundswell, this huge demand for places to go that would accept and maybe even quietly tolerate uh, the gay community. So in 1948, um, a restaurant opened in what was then kind of a no man's land between downtown and the Fifth Ward. Um, at the time, Milwaukee was not seg segmented by freeways. So downtown kind of sprawled out in every direction. It sprawled south, it sprawled east, it sprawled north, it sprawled west. Um, after the freeways were built, downtown was encased in a concrete barricade and these other neighborhoods were kind of cut off. Um, but before the freeway, this no man's land just south of downtown was called the Plankington Strip. And it was a one block strip of kind of old pre-Civil War, cream city brick warehouses, about six to eight stories high, um, really just coal stained, kind of bleak, very Raymond Chandler kind of neighborhood. Um, you know, I, <laughs> the phrase, the streets were dark with something more than night certainly applies. Um, but in 1948, the Riviera opened in this area, and it tried initially to be a supper club and kind of a high-end, above-the-line kind of place. Um, it was operated by a fairly famous restaurant host, 
and what we believe to be his chef lover. Um, their pictures weren't all the ads. They really tried to make a go of it. But in the early 50s, it was taken over by the Maki family. And the Maki family still exists in Milwaukee. They run a wholesale produce business. And they um, have always been in kind of the nightclub industry as a side venture. Uh, but the Maki's opened Tony's Riviera at the same location as the original Riviera. Um, by that time, two other bars had kind of opened. One was the Fox Bar, which was on the other end of the same block, same side of the street. And then at 400 North Plankington had been a bar called the Old Mill Inn. The Old Mill Inn had been called a sailor bar, which was kind of a euphemism of the time. Um, not only was it a bar for actual Navy you know, veterans and active duty, um, but also a bit of a place for men seeking other men. The Old Mill Inn closed in um, 1959 and was taken over by a pretty wealthy financier called Harry Kaminsky. And Harry saw big dollar signs in opening a gay bar for gay people as early as 1959. So he hired a woman from Omaha to come and run the bar since he could not license it himself. And she opened Mary's Tavern, which in 1960 became the Black Knight, which is the bar I mentioned earlier. So by 1949, I'm sorry, by 1948, you have, you know, on one side of the street, the Riviera and the Fox Bar. On the other side of the street, the Old Mill Inn. And throughout the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, all three are kind of operating as like known gay bars. And there's kind of this full city block of, of three businesses that are open after dark. And the only people who go to them are the people they want to come to them. Um, they don't really advertise, they don't really promote, um, and they're kind of hiding in plain sight, just like, a you know, two blocks south of the city's largest department stores and the city's finest theaters and restaurants, um, and they're just, you know, right there, right in the middle of town. Um, this continued into the 50s, and as I said, this, in 1961, the Black Knight Uprising took place at um, that bar, which got it shut down. It was reopened by Harry Kaminsky under another name and another license holder and stayed there till 1966. Um, so between 1940 and 1966, this block just keeps churning, you know, gay bars one after the other um, to the point where even across the river, a block east, the Crystal Palace opened in 1960 and stayed open till 1970 as a bit of an unofficial gay bar. So there was certainly a centralized place for people to go and people who knew about it knew about it. Um, it was not really a place you would go if you didn't know why these bars existed. Um, the media was fairly kind to these bars. That doesn't appear they were ever raided by any means. Um, in fact, there was a um, FBI report on a separate bar venture that attempted to open in 1958 um, that refused to pay, um, shall we say, um, bribes <laughs> to the local organized crime family. And because of that, and because of common council pressures, were put out of business in 28 days. And it was noted in the FBI reports about this particular venture that Tony's Riviera had operated successfully for almost a decade with no police issues, no common council pressures, and no um, organized crime connection at all so something something really must have been in their favor and we're just not quite sure what it was um but anyway in 1964 tony's riviera burned to the ground in a six alarm fire um a man broke up with his married 
lover at the bar and um, had a bit of a nervous breakdown. They asked him to leave. He was causing a scene. And that's really not something that was welcome in a 1964 gay bar. You know, you really didn't want to draw attention to yourself, the bar or other patrons. Um, So he said that he was going to burn down the bar and everyone in it. And he actually succeeded. Um, Fortunately, no one burned down with it, but the bar itself was reduced to ash and this six story cream city brick building was just gone. It was like half the city block. Um, That really took some of the wind out of the Plankington strip. Um, City planners really accelerated after, especially after the black Knight incident really accelerated efforts to get rid of this neighborhood because it was a bit of an embarrassment. It was old, it was dark, it was run down, it was, you know, riddled with homosexuals. And so it really just had to go. And in the mid 1960s, they started tearing down everything in its path. And the freeway came from the East and went to the lakefront where it was intended to connect with the lakefront freeway that was never built. So in effect, the, um, the Hone Bridge is there, which is like really the only thing it ever connected to, um, which crosses the bay. But the freeway, as it was intended, was never actually built. So this whole neighborhood was torn down just to tear it down, like literally just to clean house, which is not uncommon in American cities in the 1960s. There was really this everything must go mindset after World War II. I think that America did more damage to its own cities than it did to Europe during World War II. Um, but the Plankington Strip was gone completely by 1966. The entire neighborhood, every building in it, and all the bars. The only one that survived was the Crystal Palace, which was across the river. And although parallel to the Black Knight on the exact same, you know, block, just one block east, um, somehow that survived the freeway, but the Black Knight did not. So today, the Black Knight, the scene of the first uprising in Wisconsin history is unrecognized in any way. The lot has been vacant for 55 years. Nothing has ever been built there. And um, it's just kind of a sad fate for a really pioneering neighborhood that kind of operated outside the law for almost 20 years. Yeah, that is kind of sad that, you know, and there really isn't much of a way to commemorate it, you know, if there's nothing there. I mean, right. once you destroy the neighborhood, it's kind of hard to put up a you know, commemorative sign that says, you know, the Black Knight was here when nobody's yeah. going to be there to see it. Now, right. one, I, mean, this, I was just going to share, I mean, this was not accidental at all. It was completely deliberate. I mean, the only, the only buildings that were allowed to stand in this area were buildings that were actually closer to the freeway. And those survived until like the 1990s. There were two parcels that were allowed to remain And they actually like butted up against the freeway, whereas the Black Knight was on the far opposite south end of the block. So I just it was very deliberate. I mean, the the choices that were made, not just in the Plankington Strip, but in other areas of town were very much designed to wipe out African-American communities, Latino communities and other known um, gay bar and gay neighborhood areas. Um, which really took a toll on Milwaukee because now today, if you look at the city, it's the freeway system is only like something like 36% finished versus the original plan. The traffic patterns are horrific and the inner city is completely surrounded by a concrete wall, um, which kind of barricades its future growth. Now, one thing that might bear clarification here, it's something that, you know, I know and you know, but other people sometimes um, have taken offense to it when I've 
my project is called Gabe Archives. Mm -hmm. And I have people mention all the time, well, why gay? Why not LGBTQIA, whatever? And I'm like, so when I was coming out, which was in the late 70s, um, everything was gay. And as you mentioned in your history with, you know, the different things going on in Milwaukee, it was the gay liberation front. That did not mean only male. That right. meant the whole community. That's what the community was called. Mm -hmm. And so these bars that you're talking about, um, saying that there are gay bars, were they exclusively male or were they some of them mixed? Did they have any spaces for women in there or? So the ones that were in the Planking Strip were pretty much exclusively male um, based on what we've been told from people who went there and, and based on what we've heard from even some of the former business owners and their loved ones. Um, but there were women's bars. There were at least three that we know of that were operating at the same time. They were just kind of scattered. They weren't part of this like core neighborhood that had formed. These were mostly boy bars and bars for um, what I would call gender neck conforming. Um, just as you say that the word gay kind of offends people now because it doesn't, it doesn't feel as inclusive. Um, the people of this generation didn't use the word transgender. And I, I mean, one of our, you know, one of our pioneers, in fact, the heroine of the Black Knight, didn't identify by that word, even though she lived what we would now consider a full transgender life her whole life. Um, she just referred to herself as a queen. And that was how she identified. That was that was her gender identity. Um, but much as that's true of the trans community, um, we talked to a lot of women from the, you know, the 60s and early 70s who did not like being referred to as lesbians because that had a negative connotation. They referred to themselves as gay women. And, um, you know, that distinction is, has not really, has not really carried forward in recent years. I think that the negative connotations that they faced as they came out in the late 60s and were really thrust into this world of butcher femme, choose now. You have no other choices. You have to be one or the other. Um, I don't think it's like that anymore in the women's community. I think that might be why the term lesbian is more in favor now is it doesn't have quite as negative of a connotation as it did then. Um, we've heard of women who went to bars and on their first night in a bar had to publicly declare to everyone in the bar, whether they were butch or femme and what, you know, it just seems a little odd and awkward. Um, but at the same time, we've heard of women who went to bars that were known lesbian bars. The women were all butch and were terrifying. So, you know, I, I can kind of understand why language changes over time based on the perceptions of, of that era. Right. And um, it certainly has changed recently. So after 1966 and the Plankinton Strip just kind of gets wiped off the map, uh, off the map. Did yep. the bars in Milwaukee scatter? Did you know a new neighborhood? No, they didn't scatter. That's actually the fascinating point here is that, so, you know, there's all this effort in the city to get rid of all these like rundown, perceivably undesirable neighborhoods, including a lot of gay areas, um, not just in the Plankington Strip, but one of the first gay bars that allowed men to dance together in the entire Midwest was Castaways, which was on Fifth and McKinley which opened in 1961. It was listed in early gay guides um, as the place to be in Milwaukee, like not to be missed. Um, caravans of cars would come up from Chicago to go to Castaways. It was really nothing special. It was like this little corner, well, not even a corner. It was like a mid-block tavern 
um, in the former Haymarket neighborhood. So it's just in this really rundown, similar to similar to the Planking and Strip, like rundown, coal-stained, formerly industrial neighborhood that you know no one went to anymore because all the businesses had moved out for seeing a freeway that would not come for 20 years. So um, Castaways was kind of doomed. Um, there were a couple of other bars throughout the city. The the what frankly one of the first women's bars, the Nightbeat, which was on Ninth and National was also threatened by the freeway. Ultimately, the building was not torn down, but the business did move. And so what happens is that bars start kind of congregating in the Walker's Point neighborhood, about two blocks south of where the Plankington Strip used to be. So literally crossing a bridge and walking two blocks down South 2nd Street, you would then find the 100 South Block of 2nd Street, um, where by 1961, Nightbeat had already moved in and was operating a women's bar. And then you would have across the street, eventually you would have the Seaway, which moved from East Town when it's um, historic home, which was like a colonial Williamsburg, like stone cottage with like fireplaces and wood beam ceilings. It's just like this really amazing little place was torn down for a parking structure, which made no sense. Uh, But the Seaway moves to this Walker's Point block as well. Um, a bar called The Rooster Opens, which is one of another Harry Kaminsky financed operation. Um, and then also a bar called The Riviera Show Lounge Opens, a second Riviera, not to be confused with the first one. And then finally, Castaways moves down and Nightbeat moves across the street. So like in one city block, there are five gay bars again. Um, by 1969. So in just a few years, the city thought it had gotten rid of this, you know, homosexual problem. It had gotten rid of, you know, this, this neighborhood where gay people could be found. And suddenly there's a gay neighborhood that's twice as big just a few years later. Um, in fact, right around the corner on First Street, another women's bar would open called the Leaded Shade, which was opened by women who are looking for not so strict social stereotypes, but like just the ability to be like a modern woman who was in love with other women. Um, So that was another girl bar that opened. And then um, starting in the early 70s, gay bars started opening on the other side of of, um, Second Street on the South 200 block. So the Royal Hotel, which was the spiritual descendant of the St. Charles Hotel, had operated on 5th and Michigan, and since about 1935 had been known to be um, kind of a safe gathering space for gay and lesbian people. Um, They would rent rooms to same-sex people. I mean, it was just like really ahead of its time. And um, the owner had opened the Stud Club, uh, one of the first gay bars in the city to feature strippers and go-go dancers um, in 1971. And the city had just kind of had it with the the Royal Hotel. an embarrassment for a long time it was right you know right in downtown it was um, kind of blighted kind of just too much so they offered a land swap they said that um, basically if they you know found somebody who would build something new on that property they were going to tear down the royal hotel and they would offer the owner property somewhere else and um, they eventually got blue cross blue shield to build a really new like futuristic like tomorrow land looking complex and um, the Royal Hotel was demolished in 1974. And um, before that, they moved them down to 235 South 2nd Street, 
which became the Phoenix bar, which was a very much a men's bar, like very much like men's bar of the era. Um, very macho man kind of place. Um, next door to that opened C'est La Vie, which was kind of a, kind of an interesting place. I always describe it as kind of a David Lynch themed bar. You would never know what you would get going in there. Sometimes you would have um, what appeared to be teenage strippers. Sometimes you would get the world's oldest um, drag queen performing. Sometimes you would get, uh, you know, magicians. I mean, you never knew what you were getting when you were going in there. And then on the other side of that opened something called Gallery Lounge, which was like one of the first places um, in that space that ultimately over the course of time became Club 219 by the 1980s. So on one side of the street, you have, you know, about five gay bars. On the other side of the street, you have three more. And then right around the corner, you have a ninth bar, all operating, all happening at the same time in the early 70s. And suddenly Milwaukee has like a little gay village. It has a bit of a Greenwich Village, Castro kind of thing. Um, the distinction is that no one really lived there. This was not like a neighborhood. This was a former industrial space, very heavily zoned warehouse industrial. Um, so people didn't live there by day unless they lived above the business. Um, but they certainly partied and lived there by night. And um, throughout the early 70s, this was, this was the spot. Um, but once again, uh, jealousies and vanities kind of got the worst of the community. Uh, the Riviera Show Lounge was kind of a hamburger Mary's of its day. Um, they advertised in crossover publications, apparently had TV and radio commercials, which is remarkable to me for the early 70s. On Easter Sunday, 1974, um, they were planning their biggest show ever, their biggest budget, their biggest cast. There was 21 performers. Um, it was really something like on the level of the jewel box review. And um, what's most interesting is that once again, somebody um, was fired from the show and wanted to be reinstated and said, if they weren't reinstated, they were going to burn down the bar. So there would be no show for anybody. Um, one of the um, contributors to our project remembers dancing shirtless on the bar on Saturday night. And then after closing, this fire started and on Easter Sunday, the bar and um, most of the block, in fact, burned down, taking like four of the five bars with it and leaving behind like half of the neighborhood that was there the night before. And this was just terrible because um, unbeknownst to the arsonist, whose name we've never been able to determine, they were a queen who had appeared in the, in the Riviera shows before and apparently was well established in the community. Um, didn't realize that the dumpster that they had thrown their lit, you know, matches into was actually filled with accelerant from a nearby um, seed processing plant and some kind of like um, some kind of flammable cleaners and the whole dumpster just exploded and it caused, like I said, you know, four out of the five bars on that side of the street to burn down today to look at this street is, is really sad. I mean, even, you know, what now, almost 40 years later, um, I'm sorry, almost 50 years later, they have never replaced any of those buildings. Um, the one building that survives mid block lost its second floor. It was kind of restored in kind of a ramshackle kind of way. Um, but everything else in that block was torn down, um, including the night beat, which at that point was called the flame, curiously enough, that's what it spent its final days. It spent its final days as the flame. And um, 
I guess rightly so. So with that being said, um, you know, the bars on the, in the 200 block survived and they really thrived. I mean, that really became a really powerful place uh, to go out um, across the street ball game moved in um, only a month before the fire. So it really benefited from the, the loss of all of these competitors across the street. Cause they like literally all five bars were gone in one night and ball game was the only one left in that block. Um, and it stayed open for 41 years, which is amazing. It was the second long, second, second oldest gay bar in Wisconsin and the second longest running gay business in Wisconsin um, when it closed in 2015. Um, but as I said, like suddenly, once again, Milwaukee's gay community was completely decentralized and like just scattered to the wind. Um, and what this caused really was the bar community, like the, um, the epicenter, like the heart and soul of gay Milwaukee to move even further south. And over the next couple of years, bars just continued moving south uh, to the second and national area, which is kind of, you know, nowadays considered to be like the heart of gay Milwaukee. Like that's where out of the seven gay bars that are remaining, um, I would say five of them are within walking distance of second and national. One is downtown and the other one is kind of a distance from second and national. Well, maybe two. Um, but the bottom line is that um, nowadays people think this is the gay neighborhood. It's always been the gay neighborhood, but that really didn't solidify until 1984 when Lacage opened on Second and National. Um, for a while, it seemed that the Third Ward would pick up and become the gay neighborhood because in, in the 1970s, you had the River Queen, formerly the Crystal Palace, which we talked about in the 60s. Um, the Factory, which was Milwaukee's first gay disco, and it was just apparently like an otherworldly experience. And then you also had the Rec Room, which was a, a Levi Leather Bar opened in 1974, right after the fire in the Riviera. And then the M&M Club, which opened in 1976 <clears throat> and um, really became kind of like the gay cheers of Milwaukee, if you will. Um, it stayed open until 2006 and um, was scheduled for actually a reunion party this year that was canceled due to COVID. Um, but the Third Ward started gentrifying. There was a movement in the 1970s to make it a combat zone. They were actually going to move all adult themed businesses, including gay bars, to the Third Ward. And this would have been kind of a red light district of sorts. Um, I can't even imagine what this would have been like in Milwaukee. It would have been pretty incredible and kind of scary at the same time. Um, at the time, the city had quite a few adult bookstores downtown, quite a few triple uh, X theaters and, um, you know, things like massage parlors, tattoo parlors and gay bars would all be centralized in this red, in this, uh, red light district in the third ward. Well, what happened instead is that the residents of the third ward kind of rallied against this. And now it's like one of the most gentrified and, and highest uh, cost real estate neighborhoods in the city. So Walker's Point really retained the gay bars. The few that are were in the third ward in the 70s are all gone now. Um, they were all gone pretty much by the early 90s. And um, really the heart and soul of gay life in Milwaukee now, I would say really, aside from this is it, um, which is the oldest gay bar in the state and has operated for over 50 years, like blocks away from City Hall. Um, Second and National is really the epicenter and, and probably will be for years to come. Yeah, that seems to happen in a lot of cities. Uh, you seem to see a lot of places where 
you know, even though the names of the bars may change, the owners of the bars may change over time, the location has become so established as the place for gay people to go that a new one pops up in its place. Um, and I think a lot of times, too, it may be that it's already well known to the new bar owner that that location is accepting of, you know, gay bar tenants, because that's yep. an issue that gay bars have faced all along. You might have all the money in the world, but if the landlord doesn't want to rent to a gay bar, you're not going to be there. And um, so you see that a lot. I mean, you see it in um, quite a few different cities around the country. For decades, Atlanta had Midtown, which always had, you know, preponderance of gay bars. You have um, Los Angeles, which had West Hollywood and Silver Lake that were very accepting of gay bars decades ago and still maintain a presence in that scene. Of course, you have the different districts in um, in San Francisco, like the Castro and the old meatpacking district and whatever. They've all kind of evolved over the decades as eventually becoming the epicenter of gay activity in those, in those locations. Now, did you, did you see much of a change? I know you said that um, in the mid seventies, you had that uh, fire, which destroyed quite a few bars in one area in the, in the neighborhood. And that was also about the time that we were starting to see in the gay community, the onset of the disco bar concept, which didn't exist before then. You know, all of a sudden you were going from small neighborhood um, type bars and cruising bars and pubs and things of that nature. And you were starting to see big discos come in. Did you see that in Milwaukee at that time in the mid 70s? Was there suddenly a change in some of the bars? And Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that that particular movement may have arrived a little late in Milwaukee. The factory was open in 1973, and it was really the first of the discos. I mean, it was it was pretty nuts. I mean, it was like in a it was an abandoned furniture a wholesaler or showroom or something, and um, it was like on an upper floor, and then there were floors above it that had other different things going on in them. Um, but the factory really was like the first of its kind, and it really inspired a bit of a you know a renaissance of sorts of like what gay nightlife looked like um because they had like a light up floor and they had disco lights they had a giant dragon head and that hung over the dance floor that like smoke would come out of its mouth and later on apparently it was a devil head just you know crazy crazy stuff they had phones on the tables that you could call and flirt with other tables they had like fancy drinks not just like you know the little cocktail glasses of the the earlier bars Um, but the factory inspired a lot of competition um, the Red Baron um, was one of them. The Red Baron famously had Grace Jones in the early 80s. Um, but the Red Baron came a lot later. I would say that the Circus Disco was probably the first challenger to the factory. Um, the Circus was around 1976 to maybe 1980-ish. Um, and that was in the 200 South block of 2nd Street. So it was like right in the heart and soul of the, the perceived gay neighborhood of the time. Um, but again, I mean, they had like a glass lion jumping through a hoop hovering over the bar and they had like drag shows and um, like they would bring in like disco talent. I mean, it was a big deal. The third one was really Park Avenue and Park Avenue was um, downtown, just kind of um, out of the 
even it was probably closer to the original Plankington strip than can come to think of it. It was about a block away. Um, and Park Avenue was again a former warehouse and a furniture wholesaler um, that they really converted into like this multi-level dance club. Um, like the first two floors were kind of gutted and there was kind of this spite, this like massive atrium where you could like look down from above. They had light up columns that like, you know, kind of throbbed with the music. Um, all of this, like all of this happened between 1973 and 1979. And, you know, four discos was about all Milwaukee could handle. Although I think that they tried to open discos just about everywhere in Milwaukee from bowling alleys to um, old downtown hotels to shopping centers. Um, but these, those four were really the main ones in the gay community and the ones that people really fondly remember having great times at. Now, after all this change went on and you went up into, um, into the eighties and some of those bars lasted into the nineties, even the two thousands. What would you say was the peak of the gay bar uh, environment in Milwaukee when there were the most number of gay bars and the most active community that was actually, um, you know, in, in Milwaukee? That's a good question. Um, I mean, it's, it's really shocking to me, like as a historian and as a Milwaukeean, to know that, you know, at the time that Stonewall was happening in New York, there were already 36 known gay bars in Milwaukee. Um, I mean, that just seems insane at a time when, you know, there was so little, so little social acceptance and so little, um, liberty for the gay community to really, you know, have their own places and do their own things. Um, so I think that that is probably one of the peaks, but another peak would probably be, uh, probably 1987-ish, 86, 87, um, Due to a variety of different factors, um, kind of an aging out of the previous generation, the decimation of the community by the AIDS epidemic, and um, some of the oldest bars starting to close, um, there was really this peak time. And I mean, you have to understand, I mean, Milwaukee being a tavern town has really benefited the gay community because they could have their own taverns, just like the Polish community had their own taverns, the Puerto Rican community had their own taverns. Um, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for there to be a bar that really catered to black lesbian factory workers uh, near a brewery. I mean, that, that just wouldn't be uncommon and it wouldn't be really seen as anything unusual. So this tavern culture has made it really easy for Milwaukee to always have way more than the number of gay bars anyone, either visitor or local, would ever really expect until you started counting them all and realizing how many there were. Um, but yeah, probably like 1986, 87 is probably the last time we had more than 20. Um, and the sad part is since 2000, uh, since the year 2000, about 50% of the bars that were open in 2000 are gone. And that's on top of the fact that three or four new ones opened in that time frame, And those two have all closed um, aside for one. So it's, it's really, it's really hard to imagine like what the future will bring um, much like other cities, technology has been both a blessing and a curse. Um, what used to be considered a dangerous weapon, you know, a camera in a gay bar, <laughs> because people could be blackmailed or 
uh, reported to the police or God knows what people would do with the photos. Um, now, when you go to a bar, all you see are people on their phones. So it's, it's kind of a strange irony. Um, but the even stranger irony is that people go today mostly where the experience is. And it might not be a gay bar. They go to the place where they have the best time, where they have, you know, the, the most fun. Um, and this loyalty to the gay bar as a community center and a connection point might not be there in emerging generations, which is a little concerning. Um, but yeah, I mean, since the year 2000, um, Milwaukee has lost half its gay bars. And I think it's only two of the gay bars that opened since then are still in business. Yeah, it's been a trend that's been going on everywhere. Obviously, not just Milwaukee. We've seen it in every city and every state in the country, pretty much. That um, in the last 20 years, quite a number of bars have have dwindled and disappeared. And, you know, uh, cities that once had 30 or 40 gay bars at a time, maybe down to a dozen. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not uncommon. But when I was coming out back, as I said, in the late 70s, the bars had a different purpose. It wasn't all about drinking. I mean, a lot of people did go there and get drunk, but that's not the only purpose they were. They were our safe havens. They were our community centers. They were where we uh, exchanged ideas and, and formulated rallies and came up with all these organizations. I've spoken to several people that were uh, key players in organizations like um, GLAD or the National Gay Task Force or um, any of the other kind of activist groups that existed and they've all pretty much told me that if it was not for the bar scene, they would never have existed because that's where they ha held their meetings. That's where their members got to discuss political issues and everything else. And more importantly, at that time, that's where the money was raised to support these efforts because nobody was donating money to the National Gay Task Force you know, from Coca-Cola or Target or any of these big corporations that do now, it was right. all funded by, you know, drag queen performances and, and auction, silent auctions and stuff at bars. So it was a completely different environment. And I think one of the most important things that I've discovered um, is, you know, back then that was the only place that you could go and feel like you could be your authentic self. So you weren't likely to meet another gay person walking down the aisle at Kmart because right. you were trying not to stand out. You were trying to blend into the general public so you wouldn't get harassed and you wouldn't get beaten and you wouldn't have, you know, lose your job. So nowadays you can pretty much go anywhere and there are gay people openly existing everywhere. So it's, it's kind of changed the dynamic a lot. Um, Agreed. Now, you had mentioned um, in your, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you had mentioned in an earlier conversation that Milwaukee had um, some known gay spaces dating back into the 1920s. Um, were they, I'm assuming that they weren't blatantly gay. I mean, they didn't have a big sign outside that said gay bar or, no. but they were well known to the people who were in the community that that was a safe place for them to hang out 
and to meet other people of like minds. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cities, like for instance, in New York, those spaces were often referred to as kind of bohemian spaces. They attracted a lot of uh, philosophers and artists and poets and things of that nature. And the gay people knew that they could kind of infiltrate that group and not necessarily be judged. Was it the same way in Milwaukee or were these like working class, you know, pubs that gay people knew they were welcome at? Um, hmm. I would say, you know, based on the research that we found, a great deal of them were tied to the vaudeville entertainment scene. Milwaukee was on the Orpheum circuit and there were a lot of entertainers and performers um, who came to town, including some pretty famous female impersonators, as well as some locally famous um, performers. So I think that that really was one maybe social stimulant for these spaces is that you had this like creative arts group that um, attracted all different types of lifestyle and uh, identities. And um, that was a little bit more forgiving and a little more accepting than perhaps, um, you know, mainstream professions. Um, The other does really tie back to the tavern culture. I mean, just the fact that there were taverns on every corner. I mean, the Fifth Ward, the neighborhood that we talked about earlier, by the 1890s had more taverns than at homes. I mean, it was just crazy how many bars Milwaukee had at one time. Um, and the, you know, the traces of them are still everywhere. I mean, you can't go down a city block without seeing, you know, two or three buildings that used to be bars at one time that have been converted to businesses or homes or um, some other form of building. Um, so I think that, you know, more so than like the intelligentsia, it was more the creative artists that needed a place to kind of cut loose and to be themselves. Um, the history of drag in Milwaukee in particular is pretty fascinating. Um, the first drag show in Milwaukee was the only Leon, who was a world famous traveling female impersonator, who performed on June 7th, 1884. I don't think that the appetite for drag ever died from that moment forward um, because Milwaukee had a pretty vibrant drag scene, not only during the vaudeville years, but in the 1930s, the 1950s, and the late 1960s, um, even before there were gay bars to perform in, um, when this was more of a um, of a mainstream medium that you know that you know straight married couples might go see a female impersonator show like the jewel box review or the haha review um but there was definitely like a drag counterculture in milwaukee like going back to definitely in the 1930s if not earlier and i think that that might have been an early safe haven for a number of gay and lesbian people who really didn't have any other spaces to go um, but the the places that people did have that were fairly well known, like the Royal Hotel, um, the Antlers Hotel for men, um, the Belmont Hotel downtown as well, um, and then some of the other smaller, more secretive bars, like the Legion Bar, um, you know, certainly were there. You just had to know how to follow someone to find them, um, you know, certainly in the ages before the gay guides of the 60s and the technologies of today. Um, you literally had to follow somebody from a bus station or a train station and hope that they would lead you to where you wanted to go. Right. And that was a common theme in a lot of um, gay bars back dating prior to even the seventies was that they were mostly underground word of mouth kind of places. 
And I think that's part of the reason that um, you and I, I'm sure, encountered the same problem. When you're trying to research a bar that existed in the 60s, they were not advertising in a publication for the most part. Or if they were, it was a local four-page newsletter kind of, you know, home-printed flyer that somehow was circulated. There weren't actual publications. There weren't magazines out there with ads for the gay bars. They weren't mentioned in the media, usually, unless something tragic happened there. So finding the research and finding the information about these places is often a pretty arduous task. Mm-hmm. Um, you um, you wrote, recently wrote a book called LGBT Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that book kind of encapsulates the history, I assume, and the progression of the LGBT community in the city of Milwaukee over what time frame? Um, starting in the, it's funny because the things we've learned through our research since publishing that book in 2016, we'll probably completely not only rewrite the book, but publish a book twice its size. Um, the, I would say the time period for that one was probably the 40s onward. Um, but since then, we have, like I said, research going back to the 1880s. Yeah, and it, you know, finding anything from the 1880s is is difficult enough. But when you compound it with the fact that in the, you know, the gay culture being an underground culture to begin with at that time, you know, this isn't something that, you know, a uh, 70-year-old gay man dies and his son treasures the memorabilia from a gay, you know, gay establishments and passes them along for the next three generations. That stuff got, you know, buried, hidden, burned, dumped in the trash because it was an embarrassment to the family. They didn't want people to know that someone in their family was gay. So there was certainly a lot of that ephemera, a lot of that information was lost that way. Oh, absolutely. Most of the primary research that we have came from primary sources. So we met with the seniors of the community, people who were actually in these spaces, people who actually went to these places. And um, as I said, like, left us with this, tr- these breadcrumbs to follow with our research, like hundreds of little bullet points about things that happened, places that existed. And um, one particular contributor just gave us so much to work with that we're still digging through and trying to validate what their memories told them. Um, he's never never pointed me in a wrong direction yet. Everything he's ever given me um, has panned out with like very surprising detail. Um, but it, it's really fortunate that we had this window of time to meet with that pre-Stonewall generation before they started passing away. I mean, four of our major contributors to that book are gone now. And just the few years since that book came out, and there's no one to replace them. Right. And you're absolutely, absolutely right that, um, you know, gay and lesbian history is not taught in schools, except in a handful of states. Um, it's not passed down generationally through any kind of family traditions. Um, so, I mean, unless you're fortunate enough to have LGBT relatives like I do, who can speak to earlier, you know, generations and earlier times, you're really out of luck if you start researching this history. Um, one of the, you know, research techniques we've had to use, which is unfortunate but very productive, 
is finding where the gay places were of a certain era based on where people were being arrested for certain crimes and um, disorderly conduct and or sexual perversion pop up a lot on Milwaukee Police Department history records um, as places where gay people met. So, I mean, we know that, for example, Juno Park was a bit of a cruising grounds, you know, as early as the 1940s because of the number of arrests that happened there. We know that the Royal Hotel was a place where people went for fairly easy sex um, in the 1950s because of the number of arrests that happened there. Um, and what's sad is, you know, in this in those eras, the perpetrators, or shall we say the accused, um, would have not only their name, but their address, profession, age, and address published, which is unbelievable. I mean, think about that today. If you were entrapped by a police scheme in a public restroom, that you would have your name, address, age, and profession listed in the paper for people to further bully you. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I know. And it, it happened all across the country. Um, now, as I mentioned at the, in the beginning, a lot of people think of Wisconsin as being a more of a conservative place, a place where they wouldn't expect to find quite as much uh, gay history. And I know that one of the projects that you work with is uh, now called the uh, Wisconsin LGBT History Project. I think originally, too, it was called the Wisconsin Gay History Project, wasn't it? Um, no, actually, the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project started as a table exhibit at Pride Fest in 1995 when a consultant was brought in from the National Gay and Lesbian Archives to kind of educate Milwaukee on how to start capturing its history. There was a huge concern at that time. We were about 25 years past Stonewall. Some of the Stonewall survivors and, and pre-Stonewall uh, members of the community were starting to grow old and the AIDS epidemic had robbed the community of so many, so many people. Um, there was just this huge concern that if we don't start documenting our history, we're going to lose it. Um, so that was the kickoff of our project. In 2003, my colleague, Don Schwamm, took the project online and made the website accessible and, and pretty you know, deep and comprehensive and really rich with material. Um, and over the past 18 years, he's just kept adding materials and, and everything that I discover is added to the site as well. I onboarded in about 2008. Um, Don really enjoys being like the nuts and bolts, HTML coder, website maintenance um, person, and not necessarily <laughs> the person who does outreach tours and presentations and um, publications and so forth. So between the two of us, we have kind of both the left and the right brain covered. Um, and we've had some other people layer onto the project in recent years. In 2011, Jamie Taylor started a Facebook group and we've kind of tapped into that Facebook group as well for crowdsourcing materials, for sharing materials, for starting conversations, for collecting memorabilia. It's really been a great group to be in. Um, and then most recently, BJ Daniels has joined our group. BJ has been a drag artist, performer, stylist in Mo um, sorry, Wisconsin since the early 80s. And he will be my co-author on the upcoming book that we're releasing in October, which is called The Golden Age of Milwaukee Drag, which covers 140 years of drag history in Wisconsin. Now, I know that you have a personal memory from mm -hmm. one of the bars that is featured on the um, 
the Wisconsin LGBT history website that was um, opened, I believe, in the mid 80s. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that place? <laughs> yeah, so when I was trying to think of what, you know, personal memory to share, I have so many. And I mean, I, I, uh, I was part of this community much younger than I probably should have been. I mean, certainly before I was illegal and should have been allowed to be there. Um, but I certainly knew how to operate and behave and stay out of trouble. Um, but I, I will say that one of my most um, lasting memories is visiting boot camp, which used to be on National and Barclay in Milwaukee um, from 1984 to 2011. And boot camp was really the city's like premier leather bar. I mean, it was like, it was definitely a very much a man's bar. It was very much like a man's man's bar, very hyper-masculine, very um, kind of menacing with its like aggressiveness. And um, I just remember going there. It was a, a long, dark walk from like where the other bars were. And I kind of clung to a handful of bars that I knew I could get into. And I knew that, you know, I wouldn't be carded or, um, you know, harassed or anything. Um, so this was a bit of a, a bit of a venture outside of my comfort zone. So we walked all the way down to boot camp, um, <clears throat> opened the door. And I mean, it was just like pitch black in this place. Um, it like smelled of leather and cigarettes. Um, I remember that there were um, keys hanging on hooks behind the bar for which I don't really to this day understand what that was for. Um, but the keys were all numbered. And then there was a showcase that featured all kinds of products, including um, poppers and <clears throat> I believe like leather material and maybe even porn. I, I might be misremembering that, but it just all seemed like so aggressive and so masculine and so hypersexual. And I, I remember being like, you know, basically a teenager at this point. I'm just like, I am so in over my head here. Like this is this is way beyond me. And, um, you know, boot camp was still around when I was an adult and I went there many, many times after that first initial trip. And what's funny is that's probably the type of bar I would hang out in now, but back then it just seemed so menacing and just so, um, otherworldly. Like this was just not the, <clears throat> this was not the gay bar I was used to. This was not the gay scene I was used to. Like this was very much something different. And um, it was not something I was ready for when I was 17. I just remember we bought poppers and got out of there. And I remember thinking for like, you know, weeks afterwards, like what was that place? And I mean, they were playing like really hypnotic music. It was probably something like Giorgio Moroder or something. Um, and I just remember thinking that was just so like mesmerizing, just that little slice of time we spent in there. We didn't even get a drink. We just like bought something and left. And I just remember like thinking just, it just had such an impact on me, just the, the hypnotic effect of it all. Um, and it, the next time I went, it didn't feel like that at all. It just felt like a normal bar. So I don't know if they toned it down or if I toned it up as I got older. Um, but, you know, I think that's an experience we can all say we've had at some point um, in going to a, you know, a gay bar space that might have been a little bit more extra than we were prepared for. Um, unfortunately, boot camp burned down in 2011. Nothing has ever replaced it. Certainly not at the at the 
experience that I had there. Um, and um, that's kind of sad because it was it was really a cornerstone of the community and, and a, of a certain element of the community as well that just really doesn't have a place anymore. Now, you had mentioned to me in our previous conversation that um, on the Wisconsin LGBT history website, there is a photograph of an ad from February of 1992 for the boot camp. And you mentioned to me that there's a story to that, too. Oh, yeah, actually. So this is really funny. So um, although I'm still fully committed to this project and still very much connected and rooted in Wisconsin, um, I've lived in Los Angeles for the past four years. And um, recently, like within the past month, I went into a West Hollywood bar and I was in the restroom and I looked on the wall and there was a framed picture of the boot camp ad that appears on our website from 1992. And I was like, how is this real? Like, what a strange coincidence. Um, because, I mean, it wasn't like an ad that Bootcamp used. It wasn't like universal clip art or anything. It was the ad with, you know, Bootcamp named and even the Bootcamp phone number um, from Milwaukee from 30 years ago. And um, I just thought how strange it was that, you know, here I am on the other side of the country 30 years later. And, um, you know, the experience of that, that night is uh, kind of fresh in mind, um, brought back to life by encountering this ad that I, I don't even think I saw when it was published. So kind of, kind of amazing, like how, you know, print media for gay bars and print media for the gay community, like, it's kind of had a resurrection and in a form of reverence for the way things used to be and um, the way that bars used to operate. So I, I think that that was just really, really interesting to have that experience and have that moment and kind of that, you know, flood of memories come back. It was kind of like a Proust Madeline, if you will, um, of, of uh, my misspent youth. Yeah. And I'm, I'm seeing a little bit more of that. Um <clears throat> all over. I mean, the whole concept of, you know, remembering the past and the nostalgic items, uh, you started to see them infiltrate even mainstream uh, restaurants and businesses where people want to go in there and they want to see something that reminds them of the brand of flour their grandmother used when they were a kid or whatever. And I think that's kind of seeped into um, the gay bar world as well. And I've noticed that there are a number of bars in different parts of the country that have kind of tribute walls to gay memorabilia from not necessarily even that city, just random things that they found online or through, you know, members or whatever, and uh, kind of bringing that back. And I think after this last year um, or year and a half of what we've gone through with COVID, that um, that makes even more sense because I know, digging into this research and doing all this, um, this looking into the, the gay past kind of gave me something to entertain myself and, and to bring back memories at a time when I couldn't go out to the bars and socialize. So you were, it, you know, it's a, it brings an added benefit that way. Um, now you're continuing to work with the Wisconsin LGBT history project, and you're continuing to work on, another book about Milwaukee's uh, 
drag history. Is there anything else in the works there? Any other projects on the, on the plate or are you, is that pretty much it for now? Um, we are consulting with Netflix on a documentary as well as with another producer um, on a documentary with topics related to Milwaukee. So that has really been a bit of a big job. Um, so between the documentary, the new book, and just managing and maintaining the project, as well as our 60th anniversary celebration for the Black Knight, um, I think that's going to take up the rest of the year. All right, then. Well, you've done a great job with this so far, and um, I'm really looking forward to reading your book and kind of digging into that and discovering more bars around the country. And that concludes another segment of the Gay Archives podcast. You can find more podcasts at gaybarchives.com slash podcast. We also have more information about this podcast and links to the other podcasts we have completed. We hope you enjoy your trip down memory lane.